3: I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
4: Now, this is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
1: He's known as an electronic music pioneer, a successful pop producer, and a drinking game inspiration. Now, Brian Eno joins us on the show. I'm Greg Cott of
4: Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of WBEZ and Columbia College. We are joined by artist, producer, and my personal hero, Brian Eno. And we'll review the chart-topping new album from Eno Collaborators Coldplay. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From
1: WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news.
0: Let's go, so you got your head in the clouds. You made a food out of you and boys. Bring it to down. She you made a food hot milk, but the code to the buttons. Now Boomer has it, she ain't got your love anymore. Oh.
4: Greg, that is, rumor has it, the latest single from Adele's long-running studio album, 21, phenomenal hit record of 2011. What's interesting about that and all the other songs on 21? It ain't available on Spotify, the big streaming music service. Adele is not alone in not having her music come at you from Spotify or the streaming services. Tom Waits, for his new album, Bad Is Me, has refused to put the music on Spotify rhapsody or mog coldplay with its new milo xyloto is not streaming its music over spotify rdo or rhapsody it did stream the music via the itunes store one song per day we're seeing some artists who don't like to have the music streamed to allow listeners to hear it that way piecemeal maybe they only want to play one song The reasoning that Coldplay's management gave is our new album is a concept album that needs to be listened to as a whole. We don't want you picking and choosing. This is not new. We've seen some classic rockers, ACDC, Kid Rock, Pink Floyd, all avoid digital sales and streaming because they don't want the albums broken up, listened to, piecemeal. The streaming companies say, wait a minute you should come on board we have millions and millions of tracks now we don't have everything it's true but this is a better model you have somebody download a digital file of your song you are paid once somebody streams your song you are paid they listen to it a hundred times you're paid a hundred times albeit what they call a micro payment of a fraction of a cent but i don't know i'd like to get paid a hundred times rather than once (laughs) well i think the big point here jim is that there's a certain
1: strata of artists that don't need the exposure that a streaming service might provide you've already got a lot of traditional media in your corner you got massive radio airplay for adele get massive radio airplay for coldplay they don't really need the exposure that streaming might provide look at Adele's record sales 21 has sold 10 million copies so far in 2011 it is clearly the biggest success story of the year so far coldplay milo xyloto number one album in the country four hundred forty seven thousand sold no streaming, but their fan base is there. They're going to buy the album one way or another. They don't need to hear about it through streaming.
0: There is a glitch in the system. Outside the brain flow. shells melt down. Exp- in the main code, sieged by the blind mass, they won't stop the chain glow. numbers grow numbers, working ants or quantum
3: fires will flow on regardless of each abandoned carcass, You're
1: listening to Sound Opinions, and up next, we're joined by legendary producer and electronic music pioneer, Brian Eno. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that we drop Eno's name a lot. And there's a reason for that, because the guy's not just an experimental innovator, but he's a major force in pop music as well. You cannot overlook the contributions he made as a founding member to the great Roxy Music in the early 70s alongside Brian Ferry. A lot of people forget that part about his career, but he really started as a performing musician in one of the most important bands of that era. Later on, he went on to produce and collaborate with a who's who of important artists in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're talking about David Byrne and the Talking Heads, U2 when they reinvented themselves, John Cale. We're talking about David Bowie, most recently Coldplay on its most recent studio albums. Now, he's also had an incredibly prolific career as a solo artist as well. Uh, His solo release, Drums Between the Bells, you're hearing a little bit of a track from that album right now called Glitch. And he's also got a new EP
4: called Panic of Looking. Why do we bring Brian Eno's name up so often, Greg? He's got a hand in a million pots. You find a lot of interesting pop music somewhere, somehow has a connection to Brian Eno. But in addition to all of his contributions to music and the recording process, there's something that doesn't get said about him often enough. He is the philosopher king of popular music. We've invited him on the show to share his thoughts about songwriting, recording, and the greatest instrument in rock history, according to him, the recording studio. He's joining us from England. Brian, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hello. I'd like to begin with your recent album, Drums Between the Bells which is an album of poetry by Rick Holland that you set to music. For the last decade or so, you've been, in my opinion, very anti-singing and anti-lyrics. You've been quoted as saying that words box you in. Mm -hmm. So how did this project, so heavily based on words, start out?
2: Well, you're, it's quite true that I have been anti-semantic for a long time. <laughs> but I think the problem is it pitches you into a cultural area that brings with it a whole lot of baggage. And I'm not sure I want to deal with that all the time. You can tell I like, I like talking. <laughs> and and I, I like talking about whatever thoughts are fresh to me at the time. And I'm just a bit worried that going back into that area, I'll be back in the bloody 70s, you know, and the, the conversations will kind of omit the subsequent 30 odd years. And it will all be, well, what did you mean by the line? Mm. Uh, <laughs> I, and I, then I start to get angry because I think, why would you want me to explain that? It's like explaining jokes, you know. But uh, I mean, this is this is, of course, all an excuse. The real, the real reason is it's very hard to write good songs. And, you know, now since I've now spent a lot of my life around people who are not only great songwriters but amazing singers as well, the sort of bar has been set a little <laughs> bit higher for me. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. quite a stretch. But on the other hand, I've always loved poetry and I've always loved what happens when you put – words against music and sometimes I've explored that quite consciously, for instance on my life in the bush of ghosts that was really an attempt to say look, it's quite clear these words don't mean anything to me I just found them somewhere but I want to put them against music and see what happens (laughs) And I started experimenting years ago with putting spoken word against music. I'd heard things that I liked very much in that respect. Velvet Underground did some experiments. Um, There was a record in England called Red Bird that came out when I was about 12 or something, Mm. which was jazz and poetry. And I was very, very impressed by that. I thought that sounded fantastic.
3: Song that makes apples stiffens the wheat. Made your body with joy. Tongue like a red bird dancing on ivory. You stretch your arms. The sun grabs at your hair, like water was falling.
4: One thing I, I do have to insert, and I, and I said this to you when I first interviewed you in, in 1990 or 91. I like when you sing. You sing really well. You've got a good voice, and you've been putting yourself down about it for a long time.
2: No, I love when I sing. Um, I'm quite unjustifiably self-confident about my abilities as a singer <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people wish I wasn't so confident. Now I, I, I enjoy it a lot. I just think that I don't want it to be the center of what I'm doing yeah. necessarily. And also I find I find lyric writing quite difficult actually. <laughs> it takes me a long time so I don't I don't come out with that many songs.
1: What was it about these vocalists on drums between the bells? I mean, these people I gather were drawn from your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Was it a quality that you saw in in their voices that drew you to them or was it sort of a random chance kind of thing? Like read this poem, let's see how this goes and then we'll we'll
2: we'll turn it into something.
1: What was what was the attraction?
2: Well, there was a little bit of let's see how it goes because people actually often speak quite differently when you give them something to read. So but it it always started with hearing a voice and thinking oh I like that voice or I like the melody of it or I like the texture of it or something like that and then saying to the person do you fancy reading a poem for me (laughs) and as soon as they do you start to hear the you start to become very aware of the fact that speech is a form of song actually.
0: The flourish, seeing the real in things. really seeing the real describing the exact actuality of what it is you see or what it is you seem to see you really seem to see the real the exact and actual reality of the real in things you seem to see
2: one doesn't speak in a flat voice the voice goes up and down and of course, the melody that is thus formed is completely culturally dependent. So I was fascinated by this fact that what I had started out thinking was speech was actually a rather subtle and covert form of song, actually.
1: You mentioned My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. Was it the quality of the of the preacher's voice that sort of inspired the music or vice versa? How, how did that work?
2: Um, it was rather similar to this one where I had been making a collection of recordings from the radio. I this was when I first lived in America that I was fascinated by American radio because, you know, in England at that time we had the BBC, which is absolutely wonderful, but very, very kind of restricted in what it allows in. Mm-hmm. And when I went to America and I found that there were whole radio stations run by people who were clinically insane, <laughs> I, I was thrilled. And I thought, God, these are priceless. I love the quality of the voices, the the fact that they're being broadcast like this. So I I started recording them just for originally for my own entertainment. And the very first piece, Mea Culpa, mm-hmm. that that was the first the first piece I did where I tried putting voices to music, and I was absolutely knocked out by the result. I thought. This is an entirely new kind of song. In that piece, I just... Essentially what I'd recorded was... A, a very kind of crazy guy calling in. He's like this the whole time. His voice like he's calling in to speak to a politician. Yeah. And the politician is uh, one of those, you know, really oily guys with that kind of voice. And, and I just cut out all the times the politician said... Um, all his hesitations so mm-hmm. the energy of these two different voices together against the music i thought wow i better get this record out quickly because everybody's going to be doing this <laughs> in no time at all <laughs>
1: 30 years of your head, or about 20 uh, mashup <laughs> mashup culture became huge uh, about 20 yes. years later but sampling was sort of in its infancy At least, you know in the hip hop realm I, kn- I know in academic circles and in avant-garde circles there was some experimenting with that how aware were you of that tradition when you
2: did Bush of Ghosts I was very aware of the sort of experimental music side of it I, I knew about the work that had been done since Cage onwards you know of, mm-hmm of working with that famous Cage piece called Fontana Mix, which I think uses 14 radios tuned to different stations or something like that. So there was in the air an idea that we could kind of use music as a as a sponge to collect things that were around and put them together let them stew together mash up yeah but i i wasn't aware of i don't think of early hip-hop culture at all at that point
1: well nobody understood the record brian i don't you probably remember that that everybody thought well what what is this they didn't get it and of course five years later everybody was doing it and it seems like you've always been willing to sort of do these adventurous projects you could work with anyone just about how do you pick collaborators what is what is the criteria there because I imagine there's a number of people or a number of projects that are on your plate at any given moment how do you Mm. decide which one it's going to be?
2: Um, I think a lot of it is to do with the kind of personal relationship I have with someone or could have with them I would find it very hard to work with someone I didn't like very much Mm. or didn't share my sense of humor for example because a lot of the time there's a lot of a sort of undercurrent of humor going on, which I think probably would surprise people who who must think that I'm a very serious person. Hmm. And for instance, working with David Bowie was was a wonderful experience anyway. He's a kind of a genius, you know. But the, the part of it that I remember really well now is how, how funny it was because he's extremely witty. I mean, one of the funniest people you could ever meet i th- I think that really that's a lubricant to working together. When people don't take themselves so incredibly seriously and can make a fun make a joke and make fun of you and make fun of themselves, it makes everything a lot lot easier.
1: So you're seeing those Berlin records were a barrel of laughs, huh <laughs>
2: <laughs> the funny thing is they were yeah. yes, I mean they. They, we worked on them very seriously in the sense of we were both really committed to doing something, to stretching it somehow, to going somewhere new. But there was a lot of fun during the making of them as well. I think with a good working relationship, you can do that. You can keep a level of irony going at the same time as you're very sincerely engaged in something. You
0: know name an shook his wings closed his eyes and
1: moved his we'll have more of our discussion with Brian Eno in a minute on sound opinions from wbeZ Chicago and prx and later on in the show we're going to review the latest Eno collaboration with Coldplay so
4: back to sound opinions that is the song babies on fire by brian eno from his classic 1974 solo debut here come the warm jets that album followed his two-disc tenure with roxy music and then eno went on to innovate as a solo artist as well as a producer working with robert fripp devo david byrne and more recently u2 and coldplay Brian has been talking to us from England, sharing his philosophies and theories about writing, recording, and using the recording studio. Brian, let's go to the idea of the studio as a playground. Mm -hmm. You've always been someone who approaches the studio as an instrument, as a place where you can be a child, play around in your heart's content, fiddle and tweak, and muss about. Yes. Now that we're in the 21st century, with a laptop, we can make a record anywhere, anytime, even in the bathroom,
2: on a portable
4: computer. I mean, it's ridiculous.
2: How has this changed things? Well, first of all, I think really we all need to start using a different word for this thing called music Mm. because it's so different from what people were doing up until the beginning of the 20th century, say. If you think about what happened to theater and cinema, so you had this thing called theater, and in about the early part of the 20th century, people started filming it. And very quickly realized that you could do things with film that were entirely impossible in theater. And they gave it a new name. They called it cinema or the movies or something like that. It doesn't mean that theater has has died. It just means that it diverged into two separate art forms. Well, really the same thing happened with music. Music from about 1950s onwards with, with the birth of multitrack recording became something much closer to painting than to traditional performed music in the sense that people like Phil Spector and George Martin and later me as well were were saying okay, a piece of music doesn't have to exist before we start making it in the studio and it doesn't have to be done on one day Yeah. well as soon as you have multi-track recording you can say well let's do those drums today and then let's put a guitar on next week and then Let's um, go back to look at those drums again and we'll change the sound of them, and we'll make them a bit brighter, or we'll do this or that. So it's a process much, much closer to painting than to traditional performed music. it's very very interesting to note that music students had very little um, impact in this new technology they didn't really get it they were still anchored to the idea of performance and of of the recording studio as simply a place that kind of transferred something out of the air and onto a record but we art students thought oh this is like painting but it's painting with sound now As you point out, we're in a slightly different situation. Well, actually, a radically different situation where we don't have to do this in great big soundproofed rooms with um, complicated microphones and so on. We can do it, as you say, in our bathroom. Though my bathroom is very small, so Mm. I'd I'd make (laughs) very small pieces if I were in there. Be a minimalist record. um, Very minimal. yes. The feeling I have now is that The digitization of sound allows us access to sound in really, really strange new ways. As soon as you turn sound into numbers, which is effectively what you do when you digitize it, is you allow it to be subject to all sorts of mathematical operations, which sometimes have nothing to do with our prior experience of sound. So I think we've now now gone to a new level of abstraction in music. Um, well, music has always been a very abstract form. You know, it was a great breakthrough in painting in the early part of the 20th century when suddenly the subject matter could disappear. When Kandinsky walked into his, into his studio one night and saw one of his own pictures turned on its side, he didn't recognize it, but he thought, wow, yeah. what's that? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he he suddenly realized that a picture that didn't have a subject could still be a painting. Well, music has actually always been like that. Music is an abstract form. What I think is now happening with digitization is that it's it's a new level of abstraction, um, and we're only just starting to discover what that actually is and what it does to us. Was that
1: sense of ambiguity, was that what drew you to black music? Because I think at some point you, you came to the revelation that when you were a teenager... Yeah, almost your entire record collection was was black music. Was it that ambiguity, that sense of, you know, you could sort of find your own place in that world because you didn't maybe fully understand it
2: uh, through yes. this music? Yes, I think, I think that's exactly right. The history of that, for the benefit of your listeners, is that I, I grew up in a part of England, the east of England, where there were within five miles of where I lived, which was a small almost village in Suffolk, um, there were three very large American airbases. And there were lots and lots of cafes and coffee bars with jukeboxes, which had on them American popular music of the time. Now, this this was a lot of this stuff was R&B from the South, stuff that you never, ever heard in England. So it was music that I started to hear because my sister, my older sister, got a job at one of the bases and she would bring home these records and it was so amazing I'd never heard music like this I had no idea where it came from who was doing it who was listening what they were excited about (laughs) I just thought it was like getting music from another planet you know and I loved it Um, and it was only many years later that I realized that it was what you would now call Black music. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's interesting because I think they, they always say that uh, the music you hear at, at a certain period of your life remains part of your DNA forever. It, it, it imprints you forever and it stays with you. Yes. And, I, and I, I felt like I heard a lot of that coming back in the record you made with Byrne a couple of years ago, the record mm-hmm. you guys collaborated on, that, that sort of heavy black music influence. say that's been with you your entire life in terms of how you think about music and what you value in
2: music? Yes, and and I think with David as well. I mean, I think that was really the thing that made it possible for us to work together so successfully, Talking Heads and him in particular, all those years ago because they had come to what they were doing. A lot of it had to do with sort of 1970s funk and People like Hamilton Bohannon and Al Green, people like that, that they've been listening to, soul and funk. I hadn't listened to any of that kind of thing. I'd come from listening to African music, particularly Fela Kuti, West African music. And we kind of met, we realized that there was possible a kind of music that was somewhere in the middle of those things and yet was still still felt like something we were adding, you know, that these sort of geeky white people on top
0: <laughs> could, <laughs> could
2: still make a contribution to that. And I, th- I think it's all. If I don't get something like that feeling from music, I don't think it's working. If it's just if it's just clever, or loud, or has all all the right software or something, I'm not that interested. Yeah. What I want, I'm looking always for soul. Even if even in a record like music for airports, which you wouldn't think of as a soul record. Uh, But if I'm not moved at that level, if I'm not feeling at some point that it's possible this could move me to tears or to dancing or to something slightly where I've slightly surrendered um, to it, if that doesn't happen, I don't it just stays on the shelf. It's an experiment until then.
4: Reactionary for one minute. You're 22 years old, you're coming out of art school. You've called it the idiot energy of rock and roll. Mm -hmm. There had to be something exciting about being in Roxy Music, standing on stage in front of Phil Manzanera, Brian Ferry, Andy McKay, Paul Thompson on drums. You know, I mean, it's just dope. When you're in a room with a a great drummer, you're feeling the bass drum hitting your chest. You don't Mm -hmm. get that from the digital experience. Is there any charm left to rock and roll happening, you know, in a room? People exploding at the same time.
2: I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, of course, this is this is one of the reasons that I I still do like working with bands mm-hmm. because bands still do that. You know, I think I think the biggest I'd say limitation of of the new digital life we live is that it puts such a big stress on on the individual again. And so you don't get that strange synergy that often happens when you're with other people where suddenly you find yourself doing something that you wouldn't have thought of. So what tends, what often happens when you're working entirely on your own is that you keep sliding down the same uh, slope again and again. You know, this is, this is your habit. But that's very good practice because when you take those skills that you've uh, acquired sitting in your own studio at night as i often do playing around with things and you then go and work with other people you find that you've got a whole repertoire of possibilities that you've been storing up and you are so relieved to be deflected from your normal path right right that that you put a huge amount of energy into the working relationship if you think back to the um 18th and 19th century, the, the huge technological discovery then was the orchestra. Well, I think the the great technology of the 20th century in music has been not the orchestra, but the recording studio.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's a weird world we're living in right now, Brian. I mean, I think you've talked about this where the fact that it is so easy to make a record now mm-hmm. as opposed to 30 years ago. This, in fact, is very empowering. It's democratizing music in a way that's never been before. The question is,
2: is that a good thing? Well, I think there are two sides to this. Anyone who grew up in the 60s, as I did, will remember the enormous social power that music had then. It was enormous for two reasons. One was because it was a new medium that was being explored and suddenly everybody could relate to it in a new way it was very thrilling that it had broken open much like say cinema did in the 40s mm. much like novels did in the at the end of the 19th century when a new medium appears like that and everybody knows about it and everybody's keeping up with it it becomes a cultural center through which people can connect with each other can talk to each other And music certainly did that. And part of the reason it did was because there was a very narrow bottleneck on what was getting released because there weren't that many record companies. There weren't that many radio stations, certainly in England. And so quite a narrow stream of stuff was coming out. And therefore, everybody knew everything that was going on. Now, I think we're in quite a different position What's happened in music is rather like what happened in literature. You know, at the end of the 19th century, everybody knew what Dickens was writing, what Jane Austen had written and so on. Nowadays, there are thousands of novelists, millions of books Mm -hmm. and
0: Mm -hmm.
2: hundreds of ways of buying them. And so it's impossible to have a a scene that is so centered as it once was. Well, that's not bad. It just means we're in a sort of tropics now rather (laughs) than rather than what we were before we have a, a tropical situation where there are thousands of species of music around and they're all constantly crossbreeding and hybridizing it's very exciting but you you can't keep up with it easily <laughs>
4: You know, I think what Greg was getting at is, can music change the world you You work with YouTube, you know Bono still for better or worse believes that music can motivate us to make the world a better place. you know that's a very sixties notion
2: I, do, mm-hmm. do, do you think that that we can still do that yes my my feeling about this has always been that the alliance to of art to specific causes has always been a little bit problematic. I don't quite get that and I've never felt very comfortable about doing it myself. What I do think, though, is that the progress of culture, the development of art, very, very much conditions the way all of us think about where we are now and what our future is. So I think what what artists do, they sort of suggest ways of living in the world and thinking about it and what kinds of feelings you might have about it. And I think that's a much more diffuse... And less pointed kind of a p- awareness raising, you might say, which occasionally then f- sort of focuses down and becomes specific. You know, let's let's do something to help these people here. Then then it becomes slightly problematic for me. I'm always I'm always worried about propaganda, mm. even if it's for a cause that I <laughs> mm. support. And I think I'm worried about it because I distrust using emotion as a way of getting people to support things that I believe in. I distrust revolutions based on emotion rather than rationality. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I shouldn't, but I I still do. I, I don't feel good about ever using my work in that way to sort of try to change somebody's mind. I would, I'd rather think that I could persuade them through reason than through emotion.
1: That's interesting. One of the things you said when I talked to you a few years ago was that music could create conversation. And conversation was a great way to lead to new ideas. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about artists like uh, David Bowie uh, that you worked with, Talking Heads, and especially Devo. Yes. Taking these ideas about the society and the culture, floating around them and weaving it into their music they weren't really beating you over the head with any of it, but isn't that what you were sort of talking about, this mm-hmm. ongoing conversation that music can have with the culture without turning into a political propaganda thing, as you were
2: saying? Yes, yes. Saying? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Devo, because I've i always thought they were such an important band, and kind of not, I, I don't think they were properly appreciated in America, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons was exactly to do with this this issue that you've just stated, they were presenting and celebrating a different way of being. So if you think about the traditional images of rock and roll musicians, anyway, it's all to do with sort of passion and out of controlness and abandon and something somewhat adolescent and sexy and everything, all those sorts of things that we usually think of when we think of The traditional pouting lead guitarist. (laughs) And suddenly this band comes along. Not only them, I mean, there were other people. Elvis Costello is another example. Talking Heads is another example. These people come along who are clearly thoughtful, slightly eccentric, culturally bright and aware, slightly geeky. Mm -hmm. And they say, celebrate this. (laughs) And, you know, that's quite a powerful message, actually, to say, do you know what? You can be alive and and excited and part of the culture and be geeky at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it liberates a whole lot of people. When you know how many nineteen-year-old college students looked at Devo and thought, "Oh my God, I'm not such a weirdo after all." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a yeah. whole band of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, the other thing I wanted to follow up on, Brian, was the the whole notion. I, I, I constantly, I talk to musicians all the time, and they talk about the recording process. And they go, mm-hmm. you know, there are no rules. You can do anything you want. That's the exciting thing about it. And then I hear you talking about it, and I say, no, you know, for you, it's really about cutting out choices. Yes. When you approach a project, is that sort of an unstated thing of yours? Or do musicians come in all wide-eyed and you know, let's do, you know, let's do anything? Or are you sort of saying, no, no, we need to focus here a little bit? And, and how do you get them to that spot?
2: Well, I certainly have to do this with myself as well. So this is whatever I'm talking about here is something that I'm also applying to myself, which is to say, I notice that I work better when I try to specify as much as I can. So is there a deadline? When is it? How much am I prepared to spend on doing this? I mean, time and money. What do I intend to do with it when I've finished? Is it going to come out as this or as that or so on and so on? All of of those things sort of form the skeleton of what you're doing, and they help a lot. They cut out lots of possibilities. Now, anyone who's been in a studio in the last 10 years knows that there are, in fact, anyone who's just looked into a music program in a computer like Logic or Reason or anything like that knows that there are, thousands and thousands of millions of things you could do so if you want to wander into a studio completely open-minded and just sort of do whatever comes up first you're probably going to waste a lot of time Mm -hmm. Um, there are too many options to explore that way I think I mean what I do in the evenings late at night when I know the phone isn't going to ring is, is exactly that I sit around and I just try the tools that I've got and see where I go with them and quite often I'll spend a whole evening and nothing of any lasting musical importance comes out of it I'm just really learning about my tools and practicing my familiarity with them but when I'm working with people who are trying to make a record like a band I very quickly want to say what's the area we're working in how much can we think about that without Without making it feel confined or uncomfortable, but on the other hand, what I want to do is to say, let's just suggest for a while that we're going to stay between these limits. We can always break the rules if it mm. turns out, we, you know, none of the rules are forever. The rules are really there to help you enjoy the game more. Just like you know, no game is fun if it doesn't have any rules. The the reason we like games is because there are rules within which we can develop skills and sensibilities and ways of communicating with each other. Well it's the same with music. That it, it doesn't this has always been my problem with free jazz, actually. I th- I think it's not free at all, it's just confined by whatever habits you, you mm. happen to have. Funnily enough, it's it's rule making or limit setting that makes you break your habits. Because in order to do what you want to do within those limits, you often have to behave or invent a new way of behaving.
1: We would love to talk to you for the next four hours, Brian. (laughs) But uh, we realize there are limits to everything. We cannot thank Brian, you know, enough for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Thanks so
2: much, Brian, for spending some time with us. Oh well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's lovely to speak to you again.
0: Brown eyes and I were tired and we had walked and we had scrambled through the moors and through the briars through the endless and in the blue.
4: it's your turn to tell us about your favorite Brian Eno music and what do you think about the studio as an instrument? Call 888 859 1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up, we're going to review the new number one album by Coldplay. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and TRX.
0: Bones were white as tin sun And we saw St. Elmo's fire Splitting ions in the uterus
1: back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you are listening to a track from the new Coldplay album. It's called Every Teardrop is a Waterfall. It was actually the first single from Milo Xylito, the fifth studio album from this British quartet. Coldplay, one of the most dominant mainstream rock bands in the 2000s, sold 40 million records in the last decade. Quite an accomplishment in an era when supposedly CD sales are down and mainstream rock is no longer as popular as R&B and hip-hop. Now, a lot of people may know Coldplay for one thing. The lead singer, Chris Martin, is married to an actress, Gwyneth Paltrow but uh, there's a little bit more to it than that. They've had a string of huge radio singles. Yellow was the song that put them on the map in 2000. They followed up with hits like Clocks, Fix You, Their fourth studio album, Viva La Vida, or Death and All His Friends, released in 2008, marked a little shift in the band's sound. Uh, They started working with the guest on Today's Sound Opinions, Brian Eno. Enofication is the element that he brought to their sound. A little tweak on what Brian Eno does in the studio as sort of a philosopher, guru, and confidant. Now we have a fifth studio album, Milo Zalato, that Eno again contributed mightily to. He co-wrote all the songs with the band. We're going to give it a review in a second, but let's play one of the new tracks. It's called Paradise from Coldplay on Sound Opinions.
0: When she was just a girl, she expected the world. But it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in a sleep. treatment.
4: Paradise by Coldplay on Sound Opinions Greg you know we've worked together all these years I've never asked you this how do you feel about rice pudding? <laughs> I'm not a huge fan You know, yeah, right. It's hard to get excited about rice pudding, but every once in a while, you know, your stomach's a little upset, Mm. but you're hungry or you have a cold. It's exactly what you want, and you want it exactly because it is not exciting. You can have a (laughs) four-star chef come in and deconstruct and reinvent rice pudding, but really, what is the point? The point of it is to be bland, and sometimes blandness can be a fine thing. This is how I felt about the first two Coldplay albums. Now, they threw us a left turn in 2005 with X and Y, when they suddenly discovered Can and Noy and put a little bit of Krautrock into the mix. All well and good. Still Coldplay? It's like putting a little cinnamon on top of the rice pudding. Nothing radical. When they have Eno come in, hero or no, I will say there have been productions Eno has done that have not done a darn thing for the artist. I would refer you to James, mm. the jangly alternative band in the 90s. The big problem is Coldplay thinks that just by hiring Eno, it can be really inventive and stretch the envelope. And Milo xylato is a concept album mm. about Milo and Xyloto, <laughs> this a beleaguered couple in love in a like post-apocalyptic landscape in yeah. urban chaos. Chris Martin is an appealing guy. Is an okay crooner. He's got that piano thing going. He's got that beard thing going. I know why Gwyneth loves him, all right. But singing lines like life goes on and gets so heavy, the wheel bends the butterfly. Mm. Oh, my God. It's like losing my lunch. Even rice pudding has to go. There's good rice pudding. There's bad rice pudding. This is the bad stuff. This is a trash it record. It is a fun game to just sort of quote random lines from Milo Island, though, Jim. You got to
1: admit, it's <laughs> <That's> a better <laughs> I mean, drinking game than the Eno game. You could just pick out any song and pick out a line that is just laugh out loud funny with the earnestness, the the over the topness of it. Just us against the world from underneath the rubble sing a rebel song. Took a car downtown
4: where the Lost Boys meet.
1: I mean, coming out of Chris Martin's mouth, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. This kind of street urchin, you know, these two waifs running away from the world trying to find a place uh, against the oppressive forces out there. Clearly modeling himself against 70s Springsteen here. Or should I say the killers, trying to imitate oh, Bruce Springsteen yeah. and now Coldplay imitating the killers doing Springsteen it's almost like a second third hand version of it they write arena singalongs that's what this band has come down to after five studio albums I am terribly disappointed in this one because I found things in the first studio albums to, to like quite a bit. And I thought that uh, Eno did a decent job with them on Viva La Vida album in 2008. But on this one, it wasn't like he was even there. I wish we had heard Milo zilado before we interviewed Eno, otherwise we would have asked him about it. As far as I'm concerned, Coldplay is the sensitive guy rock answer to the Black Eyed Peas. You know, Party Till You Pass Out anthems from the Black Eyed Peas, Let's rebel together, people
4: from Coldplay. Not a very good formula. I think this is a trash-it record. So a double trash-it for the new Coldplay, Milo Xyloto. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have one of the most exciting
1: new bands of 2011, a live performance from Wild Flag.
4: Greg, as always, we have some thank-yous to say on the way out. Our own Wizards of the Recording Studio. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minhoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori, Southside, Malatia, if he was a Brian Eno song, it would be Mother Whale Eyeless.
0: Okay, so no one's answering. Can't you just let it ring a little longer, longer, longer?
4: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
3: New messages.
0: Hello. How are you? Have you been all right? All those lonely, 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 lonely nights. Yeah, guys, you dissed ELO. Ah, I got a problem with that. This is Elson, and uh, man, I don't know. Just one of you did it. You're talking to those Australian guys, and they were cool, they liked ELO. Don't put down yellow. They're very cool. A lot of a lot. A lot of people like them. Love your show. Thanks. Bye. love you need
3: Hey guys, I gotta say I'm pretty disappointed in the show I just heard where you heap endless praise on Cut Copy, who sounds like a lame impression of flock of seagulls. And then dump all over Bjork's new album. I don't know what you guys have been smoking lately, but uh, it was just bad all around today. I hope you guys get better at I I I couldn't get away. Hi guys, my name's Richard. I live in Brooklyn. And I just heard you play that uh, Bruce Springsteen song, State Trooper, on your Halloween show. And I really can hear an unusual influence on Bruce's music in that song, which is the band Suicide. Now, I know Bruce has praised Suicide, and I think he recorded one of their tunes. And in that State Trooper, I really hear the influence of Suicide's masterpiece, Frankie Teardrop. Uh, Both songs have that slight rockabilly reverb on the vocal both have a, like consistent pulsing beat.
0: Frankie, do draw? Twenty year old Frankie. He's married, he's got a kid.
3: And he's working in a factory. And also they both end with a scream, although Bruce doesn't even try to compete with the scream that Alan Vega does at the end of Frankie Teardrop. Truly frightening. One of the most intense moments in music that I know of. So anyway, keep up the good work, and remember, we're all Frankies. Hello, Jim and Greg, this is John from Chicago. I'm Not In Love, absolutely fantastic song, production, though I don't um, think it's creepy at all. I think it's really erotic. My take on the song is that, you know, he's a macho kid who really is in love but can't bring himself to admit it to her and maybe even himself. And when you get to that part where the female saying, be quiet, big boys, don't cry, boy, I don't know that there's a sexier voice on record. Be quiet. Thanks very much, and it's always great to listen to you. Hi, Tim from Chicago. Listening to your Halloween show, I know Greg is a big fan of the cramps, so I want to nominate "Surfin' Dead, a funny horror song from the soundtrack of Return of the Living Dead. Also, there's a genre called horror jazz, and it was, uh, he didn't start it, but Angelo Badolamente, David Lynch's frequent collaborator, did a lot of horror jazz for the TV show and the movie of Twin Peaks. So that's my two. Doing a great job, guys. Take care. Bye. No more messages.